That was good singing this morning, I have to tell you. I never expected I would hear 200 George Beverly Shays singing so well, so thank you for that. For those of you watching on our live stream broadcast, thank you for being with us each Sunday morning. It's always a delight to know you are there. If you have your Bible at home with you this morning, as we in the sanctuary here turn to James chapter 1, verse 1, please do the same at home. And if you're in the sanctuary, you'll find it on page 1880 of the Church Bible, and you'll also see it come up on screen. If you're joining us at home for the first time on Sunday mornings when we pause for times of prayer, please pray along with us. When we sing, the words will come up on the screen. Please sing along at home as well, and participate as much as you can in what we think of here as a living worship experience, Uh, and we're grateful to have you with us for that. Over the next few weeks, we will be immersing ourselves in the epistle of James. This morning, we're beginning at James chapter 1, verse 1, reading the first eight verses together. And James writes these words. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt. Because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. Amen. And we trust that God will bless to us this reading from his word. Over the last couple of weeks, I have been on annual leave, and the lovely Miss Ruth and I visited Colorado while we were in Colorado, we spent a few days on a ranch. And so I immersed myself in the law of the bunkhouse in the prairie. And I became very much involved in enjoying myself as a cowboy. And there I am in all of my finery, looking super cool, I have to tell you. But so there, there I am. And that was a week ago yesterday. I was looking over the herd for the last time. And I came back spitting and chewing, and I've got it all down, so we're in good shape. One of our experiences while we were there was that the lovely Miss Ruth and I tried some barn dancing stroke line dancing, and there she is in all of her finery looking great, and I have to tell you that I've got some moves when it comes to line dancing. I can, I'm there, but I was nothing compared to my wife. She was all over it. And then as a few days went on, we discovered there was a guest rodeo. And I thought, ooh, I've always wanted to learn how to bull ride. And when I explained this to the lovely Miss Ruth, I didn't even finish the sentence when she said, no. And I said, but I won't stay on too long. No. I promise I won't hurt the bull or break the No. Long story short... I got to do a little bull riding. Now, three things you learn from professional bull riders. Number one, don't turn your back on 
the bull. Number two, regardless of how tame or small the bull looks from a distance, do not underestimate the bull once you get on. And when you get on, cinch and hold for eight as soon as they open that gate. And I have to tell you, I remained on for 9.7 seconds. And here I am. I was given an award at the end of the week for the only guest who completed the bull riding uh, experience, and I did. I had a lot of fun. Now you're sitting there saying, okay, Richard, why on earth are you showing us your holiday snaps when we are embarking on a study of the epistle of James? Well, simply for this reason. When I was describing the bull riding incident, you were thinking something else entirely. I knew what I meant, but you were thinking the real thing. I did not mean the real thing. And whenever you come to a new passage of Scripture, it is always helpful to say, now what does this passage mean? In other words, New Testament scholars talk about authorial intent, what did the author intend by constructing a passage of Scripture carefully and prayerfully, and what is meant by what's been said? And that's exactly what we're going to do as we, as I said earlier, immerse ourselves in the epistle of James. Because whenever you come to a passage of Scripture, you're asking, who is writing, to whom, why, and what is meant by the passage in front of you. And we, of course, will always do that Sunday morning, and then we will seek to apply it in a 21st century context. So that's where we're going Sunday by Sunday. And I would also say this by way of introduction. If we were left with only the opening words of this epistle, we would know several things. We would know that James was a remarkable man and that this is a remarkable epistle. And I say that for several reasons, and I'll explain once we get there, but it really is a spectacular epistle, and I trust you'll experience that as we look into it. In fact, James is described as his writing style was that of folks in ancient antiquity. In other words, if you picked up another letter written in the first century, opening greetings would be very similar. You initially get the person who's writing and to who they were writing and then words of greetings. That's typical of the day. Seems perfectly straightforward. But when it comes to studying of James, not only is the phrase perfectly straightforward applicable, but it is also powerfully significant. Almost 40 years ago, I have a good friend, he subsequently passed away, who specialized in the book of James, and he said that phrase can sum up the epistle of James. Perfectly straightforward, yet powerfully significant. And so you're going to hear that phrase come out over the next few Sundays as we study and get further and further and deeper into this epistle. Now, the epistle also belongs to a series of epistles known as the general epistles. You have epistles in the New Testament written to particular churches, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonica, or Thessalonians as we know it. Then it would be Ephesians and Philippians written to particular congregations. Then you have epistles written to particular people, 1st and 2nd Timothy, 
Titus, Philemon, and so on. And so you would have them there. But a general epistle is not written to a particular person or a particular congregation, but the principles contained within the letter are for all people at all times in all contexts. And so that's why we're going with James. And the other reason I selected James for this fall season of studies on Sunday morning is the title. It's an epistle designed for growth. And if you are eager to grow and mature in your faith, make it a priority to be with us Sunday morning, because we will be looking at principles that you can take and apply in a 21st century setting as you seek to mature and grow in your faith. And that's exactly what James is seeking to do as he takes his first century readers into this epistle. So having said all of that, I mentioned there are three significant things that we would see immediately, and it's this. When James begins, he says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now let me pause right there. Why is that significant? Why is that remarkable? It's the kind of thing you would expect the Apostle Paul to write, or in the Johannine epistles, or Peter to write. So why is it remarkable? Well, for this reason. When James is writing, he uses the most self-effacing word he could use to describe himself. The word is doulos. It means servant or slave. And when we think of slave, we rightly think of a slave which is usually considered to be a person owned by another, without rights. And like any other form of personal property, to be used and disposed of in whatever way the owner may wish. And that is what James is saying about himself. He, said, he is saying that my life is entirely giving, given over to following God to such an extent that whatever he calls me, whatever he wants from me, it's his. Please understand this. Who is writing? It's James. You're going to hear considerably more about James over the next few minutes. And James has chosen servant, slave to describe himself. And that's unusual for this reason. Acts chapter 21, when the Apostle Paul had finished his first what we call missionary journey, he went back to the church in Jerusalem to tell them how he'd got on, what had happened, what had been the result of his missionary journey. And this is how he describes it. Paul and the rest of us went to see James, and all the elders were present. Now that tells us, even at a cursory glance, James held a senior office in the church in Jerusalem. Today we might think of him as a bishop. And here is James, right up there. And when they go to see him, all the other elders were there as well. So James held a senior position. And yet he describes himself as James, a servant, a slave. Secondly, in Galatians 2.9, Galatians, as you know, was Paul's first epistle. He is writing and looking back on how he came to faith in Christ, and he writes of meeting with James again, and he says, James, Peter, and John, those reputed to be pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. Now, notice the exalted company James is mixing in. James, 
Then Simon Peter, John, disciple, apostle, author of the fourth gospel. And here is James right up there with them. And notice how he is described. James, Peter, and John, those reputed to be pillars, a pillar of the church. And James doesn't mention it. Anyway, he doesn't even allude to it. He simply says, James, a servant, a slave. And then in Galatians 1.19, earlier in the epistle, describing James, Paul writes, I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. Now, the language is a little ambiguous. Do we think of James as classically fulfilling the role of apostle? We tend not to, and rightly. But here is Paul saying, he is right up there. But it's not the first description I'm amazed at. It's the second. I saw none of the others, only James, the Lord's brother. Now think of that. The Lord's brother. James could have legitimately opened this epistle with these words, James, the brother of Christ. And he doesn't. He goes down the way. And if you have been around Christians whom you admire, folks who you really respect, what you will discover is this, that the closer they are in their relationship with Christ, the less they think of themselves. And this is James, who did not come to faith till after the crucifixion and resurrection. He grew up with Jesus, playing tag under the table and hide and seek and all of the things we boys and girls play together when they're little. Can you imagine James listening to Jesus as he begins his public ministry? Can you imagine James watching one miracle after another saying, wait a minute. This is the guy who left his socks in the bathroom floor and now he's proclaiming himself to be the Messiah? Come on! And for James, it was a long road in coming to faith. And when the Spirit of God touched out and transformed his life, the only appropriate description for James is James, a servant. Now, let me pause right there and suggest this. That as he writes, James, a servant, it tells us exactly where he is. Now, most of us, Well, let me put it this way. I tend not to think of myself like that. I don't run around thinking I'm utterly insignificant. I have nothing to offer. On the other hand, I don't think of myself as way up here. I just don't think of myself. But here is James saying, having reached the pinnacle of leadership in the church, I see myself as utterly insignificant. And then he goes on and he says this, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations. And he writes, Greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Let me pause and we'll come to the trials in a moment. But he says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers. Now, why does he use that phrase? Why does he even put it in there? Why doesn't he simply say, consider it pure joy? He says, my brothers, because here are folks who have had to leave Jerusalem, whether it be through physical persecution, economic pressure, social pressure, they were no longer in Jerusalem and had to flee. 
And imagine what that's like when you have to uproot your family, leave all of your friends, leave everything you're familiar with, and go and live in another city. And James gets alongside and says, I'm thinking of you. I'm praying for you. Please keep in touch. I want to know how you're doing. My brothers. It's the word again, Adelphos. It means from the same womb. What he is saying is, I think of you as family. I think of you in that deep, rich relationship, born of the Spirit of God. We are of the same family, and I want you to know I'm praying for you. I care about you. Isn't that the kind of letter you'd want to take and frame and hang up somewhere in your home and read it again and again on those days when things are not going well and you think, oh, spiritually I'm a little beat up, I'm a little tired. But here is James saying, when I think of you, I'm praying for you because I see you as part of my family. Isn't that something? My dear brother, he uses the word 18 occasions in this epistle. And it's not restricted to brothers. Adelphos, the same womb, both male and female. That's how I think of you. Several years ago, and I'm sure I told you this at the time, back in November 2009, I received a letter here at the church offices. And on the outside of the envelope, it said, U.S. House of Representatives. Public document official business. I thought, okay. I'd only lived in the U.S. about 18 months, and I thought, do they really send Congress after you if you forget to pay your taxes? What, what is going on? And it was addressed, Right Reverend Bishop Gibbons. And I thought, well, if the federal government recognized me as a bishop, who am I to, who am I to disagree I told you this at the time, and we had a little snigger about it, and several of you said, and I told this at the 8.30 service this morning, and the same thing happened afterwards. People said, now, what is the protocol for greeting you now that you're a bishop? And in ecclesiastical circles, you don't simply greet someone as bishop. You would say, Bishop Thompson, good morning, Bishop Jones, Bishop, and then you would use their name. Or you might say, your Excellency. Now, I'm not pushing for Your Excellency, so please don't go there, because you know me well enough to call me, of course, by my first name, and if you're uncomfortable, Your Grace will work just fine, <laughs> just fine. So when you see him in the corridor, Your Grace is just fine. Now, what point am I making amidst all of my silliness? It's this. When you receive a letter of importance, you pay attention. Imagine how these folks were feeling when James writes to them. And then he adds, consider it pure joy, my brothers, my sister, my family, those whom I love and cherish. And then he adds what seems not so much a paradox as an absurdity. Consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kind. You think, James, really? 
what are you telling us here? Are you telling us that whenever difficult, challenging days come, there is a fracture in a relationship between a husband and a wife, tension in a neighborhood between neighbors, a difficulty at work? James, are you suggesting that we go around and say, yes, another trial, thank you, this is wonderful. Is that what you're suggesting? No. Because notice what James is saying. This is not grin and bear it and somehow praise the Lord anyway. What James is saying is this. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. And here is his reasoning. Because you know that testing develops perseverance. And perseverance must finish its work so you are mature and complete. For the vast majority of us, taking driving lessons and passing our driving test was a terrific moment we remember for the rest of our days. Because all of the lessons, all of the hard work, all of the persevering, all of the mirror signal maneuver, the things that come to us naturally didn't always come that way. We had to work so hard at it. That's what James is saying. When you are tested, like a driving test, it's there to make sure you have the skills you need to move to the next level. And James is saying, whenever you're tested, try and take a step back and ask yourself, Father, what are you doing in my life that is maturing me? Help me to see you at work. And how often have we said on a Sunday morning that whenever we face trials and testing, we are so focused on whatever the issue is that we forget God is not focused on the issue. God is focused on you and how you're responding. And are you persevering? Are you being refined in the midst of it? Are you sensing His grace? Because when testings and trials come, it's an opportunity for us to prayerfully, intentionally, obediently live out our faith and gain victory over it. That's what James is saying. Don't treat it casually. Don't pretend... It's a praise the Lord anyway moment. He's saying, but dig deep. Persevere. And notice the language he uses. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Now, I meet with enough parents and grandparents who will talk to me about their adult children. And this is what I hear again and again and again. They will say, Richard, it is an incredible experience experience to sit down with your adult children and realize they are good people. They have matured. They're not lacking anything. God is at work. And that's what James is saying right here. And that's why James is one of these, one of the most practical, hard-hitting epistles anywhere in Scripture. Because James consistently forces us to get after the areas in our lives that need to mature. Now, you may be here this morning and saying, Okay, Richard, I hear what you're saying, but I have to tell you, the summer was busier than I thought it would be. 
Couldn't wait to get on vacation for a couple of weeks. And coming out of vacation, I thought, that's it. I'm going to start some new habits and rituals in my life. And in fact, once we got back from vacation, it got busier and busier. And I simply never got around to doing half the things I wanted to do. And Richard, if I'm quite honest, if you really pushed me, I would have to tell you this. It's probably been about eight or ten weeks since I have sat down, opened up the scriptures early in the morning with a cup of coffee, and had my daily devotional, reading three or four verses, praying over my children, my spouse, my neighbors, folks at work, the things and issues I care about. And I've ended up snatching moments of prayer in the course of the day or late at night, then falling asleep. And I've had no quality time with him. And quite honestly, I've got out of the habit so much, I don't even know where to begin. Should I start the beginning of Leviticus or Galatians or Revelation or Genesis and start reading again? How should I do it? Well, let me suggest this, that tomorrow morning... You take a deep breath, begin again. Set your alarm for 30 minutes before anyone else in the house is up. Get the day underway. Sit down in that comfortable chair with a mug of coffee. Open up the scriptures. Begin that daily habit and open it up at James chapter 1. Go through the first eight verses. Go back over all we've been focusing on this morning. And then on Tuesday, do the same. And Wednesday, do the same. And Thursday, do the same. And Friday and Saturday. And what you will discover is this, that what you read in the epistle of James will begin to shape your thinking. It will shape your life and your behavior, your motivation and your desires. Because God will speak to you from the pages of his word. That's exactly how it works. But if you're not spending time with him, please don't expect him to turn up like a genie every time you rub the magic lantern because he's going to say, really? Why are you treating me like a servant to come at your beck and call whenever you need? And you don't want to spend time with me during the week? Come on. Come on. Consider it pure joy when trials come your way. Because trials do what? They bring out perseverance. They bring out consistency. They bring out faithfulness. And God will from time to time bring trials and testing into our lives to mature us. Now in verse 13, and we're going to get to it in subsequent weeks, we read of temptations. Now, temptations and trials are not the same thing. Trials are sent by God to mature us and strengthen us, so we'll stand in our faith. Temptations often come from Satan, who's looking at what? Defeating us. Who's looking at our disgrace, not our development, but the opposite. And the Apostle Paul, again, in writing in realistic terms in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, writes this. He says, no temptation has seized you except that which is common to man, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but when you are tempted, he will provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. That's the difference. 
1 Corinthians 10, 13, one of my favorite passages of all time. God is faithful. He'll be right there with you. In fact, in James chapter 4, James says the same thing, similar manner, not identical. And he says this, submit yourself to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. My problem is I don't want to submit myself to God. My problem is I think I can handle it. My problem is I think I know exactly what's taking place. And God shakes his head and says, Richard, if only you would listen. Just spend time with me. Let me deal with it. You don't have to solve this. Let me deal with it. And of course, he's right. When it comes to the difference between temptation and trials, Henry Law, in a book called The Gospel in Genesis, written way back in the 19th century, not the 20th, but the 19th century, wrote a wonderful commentary. And in that commentary, he puts together a paragraph that I have found immensely helpful over the years. Now, the language is a little archaic, a little tired. It's not language we immediately recognize in a 21st century setting, but the principles are so helpful. And he says this about temptation. Talking about Satan, and he says, he never slumbers, never is weary, never relents, never abandons hope. He deals his blows alike at childhood's weakness, youth's inexperience, manhood's strength, and the tottering of age. He watches to ensnare the morning thought. He departs not with the shades of night. By his legions, he is everywhere at all times. He enters the palace, the hut, the fortress, the camp, the fleet. He enshrouds every chamber of every dwelling, every pew of every sanctuary. He's busy with the busy, hurries about with the active. He sits at each bed of sickness and whispers into each dying ear. As the spirit quits this tenement of clay, he still draws his bow with unrelenting rage. What you're going to discover is this. That if you are serious about maturing and growing in your faith, if you want to move to the next level of profound trust in Him, that decision will be challenged. Tomorrow morning, when you get up early, engage with the Scriptures, try to apply those principles morally and spiritually to your life, Satan will come after you. I trust you know me well enough not to say that lightly. He will try to tempt you. He will try to divert you. He will try to make you busier than you could ever imagine because his single desire is to keep you out of the presence of Almighty God and away from him. Just as Jesus did not banish temptation universally by coming into this world, he doesn't banish temptation in your heart because he dwells there through his Holy Spirit. He equips you and enables you to resist it. He equips and enables you to fight back. And notice what James says. What does he say? Consider it pure joy, my brothers, if trials come your way. No, whenever, whenever they come your way. Because he knows they will come when you'll be seeking to grow in your faith. God has very little interest 
and Christians who can explode in a single moment of spiritual ecstasy and then fall back to dullness and defeat. He's interested in consistency. He's interested in faithfulness. He's interested in maturity. He's interested in growth. And please hear this. It is perfectly straightforward, yet powerfully significant. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this new study in the epistle of James. And enable us, please, this week, as we go into a new week, to spend time again as an entire congregation living in the pages of this epistle of James. Help us to take it and apply it, to live out our faith each day, not settling for whatever the status quo is, but growing, maturing, and able to see you in the midst of our daily busyness and activities. Father, bless us, please, and enable us to draw close to you this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.